Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Hey, I'm sorry it's been more than a week. I, uh, I got sick at the end of last week and uh, was really even fighting kind of a flu bug for two days while doing radio. And I don't know, I, you know, I take some um, aspirin and I felt better, so no problem. And then all of a sudden, Sunday night came on full force and uh, really knocked me for a loop for a couple of days. So uh, I'm back, and uh, that's why I'm putting out today's episode now. And that's with uh, the wonderful Pat Mills, who has two amazing paperbacks out. Now, we know Pat from his wonderful uh, comic book work. They call him the godfather of British comics. And makes sense because he created 2000 AD. Before that, he worked for uh, great books like uh, Valiant and Shandy and Larf and Everlasting Love. And really has written uh, stories in every genre. His new history of British comics it's called 2000 AD and Judge Dredd, The Secret History. Be pure, be vigilant, behave. An amazing, very funny first-hand look at the evolution of British comics, where it is today compared to the American market, compared to the European market. Pat has a lot of great observations, and he's lived the life, and it's uh, great to hear it from that perspective. Talks about developing Judge Dredd, but creating 2000 AD as well. And the, uh, the wars that you have with the suits at the publishers, if you will. It's a really great look at the things that uh, are good about British comics and the things that are tough about British comics. He's also created with Kevin O'Neill, Serial Killer, Read Him and Weep, Volume 1. It's Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill. And you wonder, because it's a novel, what is Kevin O'Neill? You know, he's not drawing, obviously. Well, Pat explains the history behind this book series. And this is kind of a fictionalized look at the British comic business, along with it being a great crime story. This is great. And they're both set, you know, they start in the 70s. It is amazing to compare the British comic scene to the American comic scene and also the history behind it. And you know I love comic book history. It's one of the hallmarks, I think, of Word Balloon. And I'm always glad to delve into it with an expert. And uh, like I tell Pat, I am a wide-eyed American tourist stepping into the world of British comics. And uh, Pat is my guide. And we have a wonderful conversation, not only about the past, but the present, the future. Pat's views on uh, certainly the television and film that is being developed out of uh, comic books. We talk about the Dread movies and uh, also the potential Dread television series. So it's a great opportunity to speak with uh, one of comics greats, Pat Mills, on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. Uh, I got some new uh, League uh, members Coming in and subscribing, thank you very much. Truly appreciate it. Uh, I got good news. I'm going to be at a couple conventions coming up in the next couple months. I'll be at uh, Salt Lake City Con in September, starting September 21st, that Thursday through Saturday. And uh, really excited about that. Had a great time at the spring show. Looking forward to uh, this uh, show in September. I will tell you the panels that I will be doing as soon as I know. I haven't gotten the uh, list yet. So uh, when it's official, you will know as well. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Thank you, InStock Trades, for being a great sponsor to Word Balloon, where you, uh, great deals are happening right now on books like Heroes for Hire, the series when uh, Abnett and Lanning were doing the adventures of uh, Iron Fist and The Punisher and Elektra and Ghost Rider all together in a very interesting uh, team. Brad Walker is the artist. Doug Brathwaite did a beautiful cover. It's 50% off, just $17.49. Uh, we've got uh, the Planet of the Apes Archive, human. This is the classic stuff, man. 
you know, Boom's been holding out on us with this stuff, and they're finally releasing it. Uh, the 70s Marvel Terror of the Planet of the Apes, collected for the first time, remastered. It's uh, Doug Munch, Mike Plug, uh, Tom Sutton, Herb Trimpey, so many great artists. And D- Doug Munch was a fantastic Planet of the Apes writer. This is one of the some of the crazy stuff, like, you know, uh, the apes run a riverboat, like Mark Twain style and stuff. Hilarious. Well, this is 368 pages. It's 30% off. $34.99 from In Stock Trades. Uh, pretty cool, man. Can't wait for that. How about Dead Inside? John Curdy, Volume 1 with uh, Tony Fajula. Uh, this is from Dark Horse. It's a great crime story. And uh, it's 160 pages. A great Dave Johnson cover. 45% off. It's just $9.89. Pretty neat stuff from InStockTrades.com. We got some Pat Mills uh, product. Let's uh, let's take a look. You can get the uh, 2000 AD pack from November of 2016, uh, featuring a ton of creators, including uh, Rob Williams and uh, Harry Flint and Pat Mills. Uh, you can get the ABC Warriors Mech Files. Uh, that is from uh, 2000 AD and uh, various artists. Uh, it's uh, Volume 2, the hardcover, and uh, it's... 20% off, $33.60. You can get, uh, ooh, how about this? Uh, Misty, Volume 1, the first ever collection of hugely influential girls' horror comics uh, celebrated by Godfather of British Comics, Pat Mills. The Girls 2000 AD. That's what he called it. This standalone collection contains the entire run of Misty's two most popular strips, Moonchild and The Four Faces of Eve. Pretty neat. Pat Mills, Malcolm Shaw. It's 20% off. It's just $15.99. That's why, man, Pat's just had this amazing collection. There are a lot of these 2000 AD packs from in-stock trades. They're 25% off um, and uh, range from prices like $19.50 or $16.20. Lots of really neat stuff. You can get, of course, Martial Law from Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill. We talk a bit about that. My favorite uh, Pat Mills-Kevin O'Neill collaboration uh, this was really a, a great, very funny parody of uh, American comics back in the 80s, and uh, it holds up. I think it's a very funny collection. 42% off, $17.39. All from InStockTrades.com. Check it out now, InStockTrades.com. Okay, when we come back from the uh, Pat interview, there's going to be a bit more of the show. Um, I, I want to acknowledge that you know Robert Kirkman uh, made this deal now with Amazon, and Mark Miller has made the Netflix flick steal. Um, I want to play you a piece of uh, a Mark Miller interview that I did a couple of years ago. You might remember it if you are a regular Word Balloon listener or have hit the archive at wordballoon.com. But, uh, and I don't mean this as a got you, but it's a very interesting that Mark has made this deal given how he felt about Netflix when I asked him a couple of years ago. So that's going to be in the uh, second segment of the show. But I wanted straight up to start off with this delightful conversation with Pat Mills the godfather of British comics, on this episode of Word Balloon. This is a real honor to finally speak with Pat Mills uh, because I've been a fan since the martial law days and uh, really excited that, uh, Pat, you've uh, decided to get into uh, the uh, the prose world alongside your comic book work and two incredible books, Serial Killer, great piece of fiction with you and Kevin O'Neill, and is it, uh, and I'm going to try and say this right, is it, Behave, be pure, be, vil, be vigilant, behave. You did very well on that. Hi, John. Yeah, the, the, the full title um, is Be Pure, Be Vigilant, Behave. 
2000 AD and Judge Dredd, The Secret History. Well, who better to tell it than uh, than the creator of 2000 AD? Honestly, it's it's as I feel like uh, an American tourist stepping into the British comics world with my loud shirt and and I'm, I'm the ugly American. So I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna do my best. Not at all. Not at all. No, it's uh, it, well. I'm I'm really uh, grateful for your interest. It's fantastic because uh, um, you know 2000 AD. Uh, was inspired, well, Judge, certainly Judge Dredd was uh, inspired by uh, an American um, underground comic, uh, I think it was called Manning, and uh, also by Warren Comics, um, and, um, uh, you know, other, other um, aspects of American uh, pop culture. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's terrific to talk about it. Well, and and to really, I mean, as as a comics fan and someone that's read a lot about the American comic history, it's great to get uh, what was going on in England, and and further, you know, you you also continue to write for other European publishers as well, correct? That's right. That's right. Well, you see, um, I mean, although I have uh, uh, written for the states with uh, things like uh, Punisher twenty ninety nine and uh, Martial Law. Um, my first port of call outside the UK was France, and uh, it's one of the things I uh, uh, talk about in Be Pure, Be Vigilant, Behave, um, which is that uh, many uh, comic uh, creators from 2080, uh, we first of all attempted to break into the French market. And um, with not so much success, unfortunately. So this was uh, Dave Gibbons, Brian Bolland, Ian Gibson, Kevin O'Neill, Mike McMahon, and myself. And um, we tried to work for Dargo, who would be, if you like, uh, the equivalent of uh, Marvel or DC Comics. Um, uh, they're the publishers of Asterix. And um, we drew a blank. Uh, wow. So... Uh, yeah, so fright. Well, that their loss really. I mean, so uh, there, there could have been a French invasion rather than an American invasion. But uh, uh, your gain and France's loss. Well, well, we appreciate it. So, and and also, um, 2000 AD, and you talk about uh, the art director that was responsible for the look of the magazine and his important part in 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 terms of uh, design. And also, am I right that uh, he did breakdowns for other artists to kind of explain how he feel, felt the, the page and, and, and panel development should look. Yeah, it, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, it's such a unique way that he did it that uh, I've tried to describe it in, uh, in prose and it, and it almost defeats me. I mean, I think your description there suggests, I, I, you know, it's come across, but it's a very unusual thing he did. And um, to, to talk you through it, the, the gentleman in question, by the way, uh, is called uh, Doug Church. Um, he's still around. He's in his 80s somewhere. And uh, we tried to get him on the um, uh, 2080 uh, documentary, uh, Future Shock. And we nearly got him on. But like so many creatives, they... <laughs> They go shy at the last minute. He said, oh, no, 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 you, you wouldn't want me on there. But, uh, but we'll, we'll try next time. We'll try next time. But to, to talk you through what he did, you've got to imagine um, 
that British comics at that time uh, had very, what I would call, pedestrian layouts. They weren't dynamic like, uh, shall we say, uh, um, Marvel layouts where there were some very dynamic uh, comics in Marvel and, and, of course, with the DC as well. But British comics at that time were quite um, were quite square, for want of another word. Sure. And what he, what he did, and it was partly because the artists we were using uh, were very, very talented guys, but that's what they were asked to do. Uh, in other words, make everything the same weight. Uh, it's an expression um, that, that I, again, probably wouldn't apply in the States. It's called front seat of the stalls. And what that means is uh, that some publishers thought, rather insultingly, that kids just wanted to be like in the front of the theatre and see everything from the same angle. Well, of course, even, you know, by the mid-70s, I think artists like Neil Adams and so forth had had changed all that, Steranko and so forth. But in Britain, we were still in front seat of the stalls. So th this guy, Doug, did something absolutely astonishing. He laid out with stick, stick figures, if you like, uh, every single image to look really dynamic. And uh, if anyone looks at, say, the first 10 issues of 2000 AD, you'll be amazed at just how in-your-face, punchy, uh, and full of excitement those images are. In a different way to the French, in a different way to um, the, the kind of Marvel and DC comic tradition. Uh, it's unique to Doug Church. And then after about the first 10 issues, um, I couldn't persuade him to lay out anymore. I used to, uh, I used to follow him around the studio saying, Doug, just lay this one out. But if you look at those first 10 or 12 issues, and then you compare uh, subsequent issues, uh, you'll see uh, the difference, that it becomes a little more conservative. And I think Doug brought something to the comic that even today uh, we, we can still learn from. It, 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 I'm not sure it's a uniquely British thing, but there was an energy about it. And um, I think we all of us, uh, we all like to think sometimes um, that things get bigger and better and it's onwards and upwards. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. There were some things that Doug was doing um, that we, re we really should get back to. Interesting. And, you know, um, much like Jack Kirby at Marvel, he had to kind of lay out uh, dynamic uh, suggestions to people like John Romita. And I, I know I've read that in the past, that when Romita was doing uh, Daredevil before he got to Spider-Man, uh, uh, Stan Lee had Jack Kirby kind of coach him into doing some more you know, dynamic panels and, and broke things down for him. So I, I I appreciate those kinds of similarities, and then also the very different ways the business op businesses operated as far as American comic publishers and British comic pub publishers. You lay that out in your history uh, quite dramatically, and I I think uh, with with uh, I I guess because it's been a few decades, you can in some ways laugh about it, but also I, I know that uh, there are frustrations I guess that still exist in terms of the way British comics are made. Correct? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because, um, well, I mean, you have uh, you have a, a tradition of creator-owned books 
in the States, which goes back um, probably to the early 80s and perhaps, you know, perhaps the very end of the uh, 1970s. But in, um, in Britain, um, we've had to fight uh, to get creator ownership. Uh, generally, we failed. <laughs> um, there's a story in the book of an, early, uh, an earlier uh, generation of creators, uh, uh, a good 15 years um, are older than myself and, and the various guys on 2000 AD. And he, uh, this is a guy called Leo Baxendale. Now, he would have um, uh, drawn cartoon strips for uh, the Beano and the Dandy. And th these would be like, I guess, the equivalent of um, Harvey Comics in, in the States. Sure. And he was the most, he, well, Leo Baxendale was the most famous uh, uh, cartoonist in Britain. And he took on the publishers and he said, look, I, I want a slice of the action. You know, I, I'm a successful artist and I, I, I need a fair share. And he fought them right through the courts. And uh, he eventually uh, got a deal. But, um, and I, I, I don't know if, the, the, um, <laughs> if any American publishers are listening, I hope they'll close their ears at this bit because uh, the, the, the British publisher... <laughs> uh, they agreed to it, uh, but they made him sign uh, an NDA. So he could not reveal to the rest of us uh, just what he won and how. Wow. Because they didn't want us, want, want us all copying him. Sure. And we, we, we did copy him, and we have fought for rights. And I think the bottom, I mean, it's more complicated than this, but the bottom line is, I think, despite 40 years of... Uh, um, you, you know, uh, working on the galaxy's greatest comic and, and all the rest of it, we basically lost. I think that's the bottom line. Uh, but, you know, in the best tradition of creatives, and, I, and I'm sure there are stories about Jack Kirby in the same way and so yeah, on, yeah. you know, we, 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 made it, we made it work. And, of course, the, the net result is that uh, that's why you see so many British creatives' names uh, working for the States because you guys give a better deal. And in a similar way, I work for France. And the, the, the tragedy is that um, in Britain, and I bet there are some echoes of this in, there, in the US, especially some of the things I've been reading recently about Marvel. Um, in Britain, uh, for what I call the suits, this is the, you know, the kind of, not so much the accountants, but the people who believe in, in, in the profitability of the comic and nothing else, um, they don't care. And I think that's the sad thing because uh, for me, whenever I had a, um, a creative working for me who wasn't happy, um, my first thought would be, okay, how can I make you happy? Do you want more money? You know, this is if you're in good, of course. And uh, it doesn't work like that. In, in the UK, they would rather see great talents uh, leave for other countries. And as an example in um, Be Pure, Be Vigilant, Behave, um, the, um, the, the two examples that come to immediate mind are Dave Gibbons and Brian Bolland. And I said to John Sanders, the publisher at the time, I said, look, you've got to offer these guys more money to, to stay. You can't have them go off to 
to DC Comics. And um, a publisher said, no, no, what can we do? You know, um, America will always uh, uh, win, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was going, no, we, we, we have to fight back. We, we have to offer these guys more money to stay. But we lost. Never mind. Never mind. Well, and, I, and I'm sorry about that because I find not only uh, the creator-owned work that, that comes from Britain so fascinating, but also uh, just the take on a- adventure comics and, and certainly licensed heroes. You have, you're on record for saying that you don't really care for writing for DC or Marvel as far as their superheroes go. And I totally understand, and I'll let you explain your disinterest in traditional American superheroes. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, as you say, that's the operative word. It's the traditional superheroes because, I mean, for a long while, I mean, when when I started writing uh, martial law, um, who's a superhero hunter, he... um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I just sort of took it as, as kind of read that he, he dislikes superheroes and and so on. And I never really analyzed just why I was able to uh, write it with so much passion. In other words, I think far more than uh, that, than other British writers. I mean, for example, uh, Alan Moore does an incredibly beautiful job of, uh, of with Watchmen. Uh, but he, there is a, uh, what should we say, there's an affection there. Um, for uh, classic superheroes, uh, which I don't have, and uh, that, so I suppose you can say that's that's one significant difference between uh, Watchmen and Martial Law. And for a while, I wondered. I thought, why do I have so much passion on this subject? Because um, you know, there various other um, uh, uh, American comics I absolutely. Ad- door, like uh, the Warren comics, I, I love Steranko's work, and so forth. And I think I eventually pinned the reason down, and I think it goes something like this, that the the majority of traditional superheroes, um, they tend to come from the middle classes and upper classes. So you could say, ah, this is Pat with his British working class chip on his shoulder, uh, and there's probably some truth in that. But also, um, it's a recognition that these guys who are heroes—they're what should we say—they're—they're—they're they're, um, they're billionaires usually. Uh, guys like um, you know Batman and Iron Man and so on. Uh, they're, they're arms dealers. They're, they're lawyers. Uh, you know, they're, they're all members of, of uh, elites, you know, they're elite members of society, whereas uh, deliberately martial law, um, he begins as a blue collar, uh, unemployed uh, worker. And uh, subsequently he goes to work in a, uh, in a hospital uh, to, to deal with afflicted superheroes, which is, which is a lot of fun. And, uh, uh, but he he doesn't go into a hospital to work as a brain surgeon. He goes in to work as a humble hospital orderly. And I think, you know, this was a, a really important point. And, and I can't say it's um, a, a particularly American phenomenon because I think uh, British popular uh, fiction is, is guilty, and I, and I use the word guilty deliberately, uh, of exactly the same thing. If you look at 
all the really popular um, British heroes of fiction, they're all from the uh, from the upper classes. Uh, for example, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, James Bond, um, Sherlock Holmes. Um, they're, they're, and, you, and, and I think it was it was some years ago that it hit me hard, and I suppose I've got used to complaining about it now. But it goes it goes something like this: that, is that what, where are our working class heroes? Um, so when Stan Lee wrote uh, the early um, uh, uh, Spider-Man, there, there, there's a recognition of that. You know, you have Peter Parker with his. Um, you know, improvising with his costume and all that kind of stuff, and he's a he's a pretty ordinary guy at that point. Um, but with that uh, exception, generally, um, you know, the, the the American superheroes tend to be uh, elitist, and I'm afraid in in uh, text novels at least, um, so do British uh, British heroes, and we desperately need. Uh, more working class uh, heroes. Um, very occasionally, um, when we've had, I mean, uh, uh, all my heroes will tend to be uh, blue collar workers or similar. Um, but when we've had um, what I would call major successes in that direction, um, you know, it, it really does make a difference, um, not just to readers at large, but to. Kids in particular, young kids, uh, and the series I'm thinking of is um, Charlie's War. Uh, this is a series uh, about a, a young soldier in World War One, and its original target age group would have been similar to um, uh, Marvel and DC mainstream comics, um, uh, you know, a couple of decades back, perhaps. In other words, kids of say, what should we say, eight to thirteen, fourteen, that kind of thing, and. This particular series, which ran for, oh, I don't know, six, seven years, maybe longer, it runs to about 10 very large volumes. Um, it, um, it, it was very, very successful, but it was anti-war. It was not, uh, and I think it's possibly one of the only anti-war series that has reached a, a, a large audience. Well, I know it's one of your favorite series, and I uh, I haven't read it. I would like to, and I I appreciate uh, Garth Ennis's war stories that he's been doing over the years. And again, um, the British war experience is very different from the American <coughs> war experience. And I and I again, I, I think that's always you know interesting to co- compare the two. Another thing that I find with with uh, British writing when it comes to hero stories, there's always that undercurrent of cynical humor. At least that's my perception, and I love that. And I, in fact, I, as I understand it, hearing many uh, British creators talk about it, it wasn't just in uh, the men's adventure stories, it was in uh, the women's adventure stories or soap operas. I'm not even sure how you'd categorize the girl comics that you worked on and others in the 70s, but I remember hearing Alan Moore talk about the blind ballerina and the kind of... <laughs> There you go, and the kind yeah. of trouble that he would put the blind ballerina in, and and again, based on what I've been reading in in uh, your your 2000 AD history, you were doing the same thing in your girls' comics. Oh, absolutely, and, and I should make a comment here, and, and I, I do make this point quite regularly that um, American culture has some of the uh, certainly where television is concerned has some of the greatest and most cynical and black comedy 
you could ever imagine. Absolutely. And I have a huge fan. And the, uh, I mean, the, the sort of things that come to mind are Breaking Bad sure. and Larry David. And I, I, I think I've watched the Larry David series to death now. I, I don't think I can watch it anymore because I, I almost know every line. <laughs> but I mention this because that cynicism and that black comedy, which is very much associated with all us Brits when, when we write for the States, uh, it, it is there uh, amongst uh, um, uh, American writers as well, of course, uh, particularly, I think, was it Bill Dubai? Uh, Bay, Bill Dubai? I'm not sure. The guy who was the uh, editor of uh, Warren Comics. I mean, some of his stuff was wonderfully dark. But, uh, but by and large, by and large, um, the, the you know the mainstream material at least is, is quite serious. You know yes. what I mean? It's uh, it's quite po-faced. And of course, this is why uh, I think uh, uh, British uh, British creators have been valued. You know, guy guys like Grant Morrison and so forth. Um, I think uh, I think the Americans have always been a little more wary of me <laughs> because of things like martial law, which is a <laughs> is a little bit of a. Uh, bit of a you know an advertisement for a, a rather negative attitude although I, again i should say that both marvel and dc comics um published martial law yes and uh, uh you know I, I think it was quite a thrill for kevin o'neill and i when uh, when dc published uh, martial law uh, um you know we we were quite taken aback because uh, <laughs> uh because it is so dark although um just in case any of your listeners are uh, wondering about this, um, and you may not be aware of this yourself, I don't know. Um, about three years ago, uh, DC Comics approached us, and they said to, uh, uh, I think they approached Kevin at San Diego, and they said, um, uh, would we like to do a martial law Batman crossover? <laughs> well, uh, you know, <laughs> as you can imagine, we were... Uh, are you for real? <laughs> you know, <do> you really? <laughs> uh, and they said, no, no. And I think about three years ago, they, I think that was perhaps when they were perhaps being quite experimental and trying some new directions and, and realizing they had to shake some of the dust of the past off. Um, and so we, we put together a proposal and uh, they okayed the proposal. And, uh, and then um, uh, they they wanted a little bit more detail, so we, we put in some more detail and we agreed on price and everything else. And we, we then went into uh, a fuller synopsis. And I suppose to be fair to DC, uh, maybe it was the fuller synopsis that worried them. You know, they, they got some idea from the earlier version, you know, but uh, um, uh, they, they changed their mind. I mean, to be fair, if you commissioned me to do a a, a martial law Batman uh, thing, I, I think you'd know roughly what you were going to get, wouldn't you? You know, yeah. well, you're, you're, uh, you 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 know you you get what you, you know. You look at the creators and you think, okay, if if I choose these guys, this is what they're going to do. And uh, anyhow, they changed their mind. They said, well, we've we've, we've read your final synopsis. And after giving it further reflection, um, we're going to pay you a kill fee and it's not going to happen. But you could, you know, anyone who is uh, following this can perhaps imagine uh, in their heads just just what it would be like, uh, martial law and Batman. 
And it was a hoot. It really was a hoot. It was a lot of fun. Well, and I and I can't remember the name of the superhero that in particular suffered martial law's punishment, putting it mildly. But uh, it basically... Uh, well, there were perhaps one of the most well-known. There was the public spirit. That's right. Thank who, you. Yes. Yeah. Now he, he was a kind of Superman-like figure. Yes. I don't think he was. I think he was more a general um, figure of power. And I think this was the thing that, um, again, it bears out my, my kind of dislike of these characters because he really was a symbol of American power, you know? Yes. And, and uh, you guys probably know more about this than I do, but I, I'm very aware how these superheroes are often, you know, painted on the side of, uh, you know, war machines and things. Sure. And, and they are an inspiration to the military. And uh, I think, uh, I don't think I mentioned it in the book, but I, I think I covered it in a blog or something. There was a recent, uh, and it was a mainstream uh, news article about how um, the American government in the form of uh, the CIA uh, are actually on movie sets. Uh, I think one of them offhand comes to mind was The Incredible Hulk. And I think it may have been Iron Man or Fantastic Four, one of those other ones. And they were specifically, because they were, what should we say, facilitating funding and, and all the rest of it. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, not, it's not just paranoia. Wow. <laughs> you know, the, the, in other words, and this was a, this was a mainstream article. I, I haven't got it to, to hand to, to quote to you, but I, I think if you put in some search words uh, um, along the lines I've just mentioned, um, it, it, it could come up. And it was, it was quite revealing. And, and not, of course, not just superhero um, uh, comic films, uh, but, you know, various other um, uh, things. And to be fair, um, Britain probably does it as well. We don't have such a, a developed movie industry, but uh, I, I'm sure we get a little um, covert help from the UK government as well. I mean, <laughs> they're, just, they're just more furtive about it, John. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I'll tell you, I enjoyed uh, programs like uh, Spooks from British television. I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. You know, and of course, I, I don't know if you're aware, the current Batman writer, Tom King, is a former CIA uh, operative that, that was there in Iraq. And he actually has a really great uh, Iraqi story that he's doing for Vertigo called The Sheriff of Babylon. And uh, Well, I, that's, that's, good. that's good in a way, because whatever, whatever his um, you know, personal perspective... Yes. Um, one of the things that I mentioned in um, – oh, and by the way, I should say on Be Pure, Be Vigilant, Behave, um, if anyone's wondering why on earth does Pat use that as a title, yes. it's, the, uh, it's the battle cry of, of, a, of, a, of a villain uh, called Torquemada in 2000 AD. <laughs> and uh, he is uh, – it's the Spanish Inquisition in space. So uh, I, hope that doesn't, I hope that doesn't leave you even more baffled than you were before. Um, but to, to, to come back to uh, um, that point I was making, that um, I, I think it's very, very important that uh, writers draw on their own real-life experiences, uh, if they possibly can, 
and that actually means that they should have a life. <laughs> so this guy, he sounds like he'd be perfect for Batman or or the Vertigo series because he presumably knows what he's talking about. And um, I, as you may re- remember from uh, the the Pure book, uh, go to some lengths of talking about this and how there was a period in the in the late 1990s where. Uh, one particular writer who uh, not only was very gifted as a writer, but was also drawing on a lot of real-life experiences because he was a martial arts expert and, and so forth. And he was really pushed out of the comic um, because it was almost like his knowledge was seen as rather threatening. Uh, so that rather parody image we often have of uh, comic book writers and artists as kind of couch potatoes, um, you know, drawing on nothing other than the internet, uh, was actually being born out then. And, and I was really quite cross to see that talent uh, lost. There was, it was like there was no understanding that if you've experienced certain things, then you're the, the perfect writer or artist to, uh, to write or draw about them. If you're basing, if you're basing all your stories uh, on... on um, stuff you've got off the web uh, chances are is not going to be the same it's not going to be good as good there, there, there may be exceptions but generally speaking it won't be as good i agree with you and i and yeah you have to live life before you can write about life and and you only well that's to, what they say well and i think you're right and i mean you know i'm, I'm in my early 50s and you know i, I don't have uh, the quite the perspective that you would have you know given your time on the planet but i but that's the thing i think as we get older it's not wisdom. It's just experience and having lived life. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you're right. There are some exceptional young young people that, that do bring a, a good perspective to their work. But, uh, no, I think you do have to live life before you can write about it. I agree with you. That's it. That's it. So, I, I, you know, I try to get into that aspect of, uh, you know, with uh, Be Pure um, because um, – yeah, they, uh, they, they, there seems to be a tendency in comics at the moment um, to be quite conservative, uh, quite traditional. They're, they're, perhaps it's just my personal uh, observation on it, but it, it feels quite um, quite low-key at the moment. I mean, the movies are doing great and everything, but um, elsewhere, not so good. Do you? And I, I also want to... Hear about uh, is it accident man or accidental man? Yeah, accident man. Yeah, um, that is your own creation that soon will be a movie. Yeah, that's right. And um, uh, on that particular one, it, it started off life as a, uh, a comic strip uh, in Toxic, uh, a fairly obscure British comic. Uh, but it also ran in Dark Horse. There was, a, I think, a four issue series. Uh, illustrated by, um, uh, let me see now, Duke Mighton, and um, uh, there were covers by um, Howard Chaikin. And um, it's, yeah, and um, uh, there's um, uh, um, an actor who uh, many of your audience will know, Scott Atkins, and uh, he was a huge Accident Man fan. And uh, he's optioned it. Uh, it's actually, the, the film has been made. Uh, I think its editing is sort of complete. And I imagine it will have a 
some kind of theatre release. Um, uh, and um, but probably I, I would guess it would it will turn up on something like Netflix or or, or something of that sort. Sure. And I think we should hear about that soon. And Scott Adkins, of course, uh, has a huge following uh, as a martial artist, and I think he's appeared in um, um, I think a couple of superhero films. Uh, probably playing a villain. Uh, I should know the names offhand, but as, as the writer of martial law, I, I hope you'll forgive me for not knowing. <laughs> and, uh, Doctor Strange, uh, something I saw you mention. Yeah, Doctor Strange, that's that's correct, yeah. And um, it, who Accident Man is? Okay, he's, um, he's a murderer uh, who uh, makes uh, the, uh, the, the crimes look like accidents or suicides. And he's very, very good at it. And it was written uh, by myself and my colleague, uh, Tony Skinner. Um, and we, we, uh, we wrote Punisher 2099 together. And anyone who recalls that series uh, will remember that the weaponry uh, was very ingenious. And, and that was down to Tony, uh, as indeed is... Uh, uh, the the various uh, murder methods in um, in Accident Man. That's excellent, man. No, I I, I look forward to seeing it, and I uh, I I'm, I was interested. It, it's funny this week as we're speaking, Mark Miller uh, just got a great deal with Netflix for a lot of his creator owned stuff, and uh, and you mentioned the superhero movies. I did. I was interested in what you thought of. Uh, the superhero output right now, as far as films goes, and how how many you've seen, and what you know, what you like, what you don't like. Well, uh, my wife really enjoys them, so we go along <laughs> to see more of them than I, than I, I would. Uh, she thinks I take it all far too seriously, so I have seen some of them. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, I mean, I think the I think the energy around it is great. I think the the fact that Marvel. Uh, have got such a take on it, it is is really good, and uh, I gather that uh, uh, DC films are, uh, uh, you know, the Warner Brothers uh, films are doing well too. So uh, it's terrific, and um, I suppose inevitably, um, you know, where Britain is concerned, we're we're running, um, uh, you know, not so strongly behind you guys. I don't think the um, you know the, the second Judge Dredd movie. Um, uh, really, um, you, you know, had had as much traction, but uh, um, nevertheless, there, there, there's talk of this um, uh, Dread TV series coming up, and um, uh, yeah, so fing- fingers crossed that things happen there. Oh, and another one I should mention, which is um, uh, only very indirectly um, associated with me because I, I, I'm inspired by French comics. And that's Valerian. Now, uh, Valerian, um, I think, started in the 1970s and was uh, a big source of inspiration for me on 2000 AD. And it was also, to put it gently, uh, a source of inspiration for Star Wars. But I gather, even though the film is directed by Luc Besson, uh, I gather it hasn't worked in the States. It's just come out and, and it isn't flying, if I've understood it correctly. No, you're right about that. And I... and, and um you're right, and then certainly, like you said, the Dread movie didn't have the traction here that it that it may have in, in the rest of the world. And um, you know, I, while I appreciate as as the developer of Judge Dread, 
as you call yourself, you and John Wagner, and you, you go into detail how, you know, there's a distinction there between creator and developer and what your contributions yeah. are. Um, it's, yeah, I, I again, I, Dread is kind of an acquired taste here. And, and I, again, probably because of that undercurrent of cynical humor that I see and everything, but some people might take Judge Dredd at face value and say, oh, it's too violent, and it's too, you know, uh, it, it's too, it, again, I think they miss the humor that, that is, is underlying in, in some of these concepts and characters. And uh, it's, a, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, Dredd, Dredd has, been, um, uh, has been a little cursed in that respect because um, it's, pro- it's pretty well known now that the humor which could have uh, modified the character and was an essential element of it, um, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, Robert, what was it, uh, Robocop. Um, sure. Robocop came out first, and it drew somewhat on dread, and they acknowledged Absolutely. this uh, for its dark, for its dark sense no of humor. Question. So yeah, so when the first dread movie came out, uh, I don't think it had the same comedy level, and I don't think Stallone is probably uh, really the right uh, kind of actor to deliver those kind of stony face lines. And then with the second dread movie. They didn't go down the humor road, and they made a mistake, which um, I think Alex Garland apparently acknowledges in the extras on the 2008 documentary Future Shock, and there's a Blu-ray version with hours and hours of extras. And I think he, it's a point that um, I make him be pure. It's not rocket science, and, you know, Fans will still disagree with me on this to this day, and in fact they do, but the, the rule should be that you put your mainstream audience first and your fans second. If you put fans first and the mainstream audience second, uh, then you will pay for it at the box office. And that's what happened with Judge Dredd, and it also happened with uh, with Watchmen. Um, you know, and, and it's such a... And the thing is, because we all uh, love that feedback and need that feedback and support from fans, but if you're creating something, the question that I always uh, uh, say to myself, whatever I'm working on, is how do I appeal to the man or the kid in the street who's never heard of me, who's never heard of my character or whatever? How, you know, okay, he may have heard something about Judge Dredd or Accident Man or whatever it is. But you've, you've got to think, how do I relate to that person? And if you start with a kind of um, a, a, a different premise of thinking, well, this is what the fans want, uh, you're missing out on this uh, th- these guys. And, and as you say, your first impression uh, it, it is what counts. So if you see Judge Dredd as this sinister uh, fascistic cop, uh, that's not necessarily going to work. It's going to is going to make the um, uh, uh, the viewer uncomfortable. Uh, there are solutions. There are ways around it, and uh, we found them in the comic. Uh, we've yet to find them on the screen. I, I think there is a certain awareness of it, but you know what it is. Um, there are inherent problems on Judge Dredd, which no one wants to look at because if you were to look at them, it's like you've got to. 
not so much going for major surgery, but you've got to have a long, dark journey into the soul to say, well, what is the character about? Where did it go right? Where did it go wrong? And you can almost, I wouldn't say you analyze it to death, because that, there's, there's always that danger. You can, you can chase your own tail trying to make sense of things. But you've got to go through some kind of process like that. It, and then you, you kind of go through that process and you come up with something at the other end. You can't escape it. There's no, there's no shortcut on it. And, and I feel in the past there was that shortcut uh, because Dread has always been um, a, a character that was, well, I'll say politely, an uneven character because the way it was created um, was somewhat chaotic. Uh, I mean, I, I, I get the feeling that some Marvel and DC characters, uh, generally the process is a little smoother. But the process on Dread was so complicated. Uh, I mean, re really involved. And, you know, I, I know that, um, you, you know, you can't reinvent these characters. Uh, although I think people try. I mean, I think IDW, uh, they're probably having some success with their American dread. Yes. But I, I know, I know it makes, uh, I'll keep this entirely anonymous, but I know it makes uh, some leading uh, British uh, uh, comic uh, creators who are involved with Dread, and I'm not talking about myself, um, it makes them bristle. I, I, I think it was one where Dread has, he's in the cursed earth and he's got a long beard. Um, yeah, that didn't go down well. Let's put it like that. <laughs> sure. It's like, you know, I mean, I don't know if you can imagine Batman with a long beard or Superman with a long beard. I, I suspect they wouldn't go down too well with the, uh, the you know, the various uh, uh, artists and writers on, on those characters. Well, and as, as you say in the book as well, um, the various, you know, writers who were working on Dread right from the start and everything and uh, stories like The Cursed Earth are classics and stuff, but... You know, you, you, you mentioned that some artists didn't get Dread quite right as far as your, you know, feelings about the character and, and likely John Wagner's feelings about the character. Um, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I can appreciate that. And, and again, I, I point to uh, the book in terms of really getting into detail, uh, not only the creation of Dread, the handling of Dread uh, through the years. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you even, I think, are charitable to the first movie is in terms of hey at least they got a movie made and you know yourself from first-hand experience how tough it is to to get these things yeah. adapted and, and made do you think a, a dread and i and again there's talk about a dread series as you mentioned um and that's why i had mark miller on uh years uh, just a couple years ago and and said don't you think your stuff as his movie deals were happening i said wouldn't you like to have a netflix deal where you've got 13 hours to explore a more complicated character and story as opposed to a film. And at the time, he's like, oh, no, I think a film, you know, you can do more from an action standpoint. And no, you know, two or three hours, that's enough. And it's funny now that he's cut this Netflix deal because, and I'm sure, you know, this is, again, it's, it's a great opportunity. And, and certainly television has supplanted films as the superior storytelling medium because now, like comics, it can be more episodic, and you can really get into 
more deeper characterization and 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 really give a a character a proper arc that they can't get in two hours. I think I think that's a, I think that's a really good summary, and I think uh, it, it would lend itself to Judge Dredd in a way that a movie um, you've got to you've got to get a movie right. I mean, you've got two hours, you've got a three three acts, you know, beginning, middle, and an end, bang. So you've really got to be sharp on that, and I think. With a television series, you can afford to play the whole thing through and play it out and so on. And, and I, think, uh, I think we're all turning into uh, uh, box set junkies, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> you know, where we think, ah, oh, right, you know, there's uh, Breaking Bad. You know, that's a whole weekend lost. You know, watching, <laughs> what, maybe three or four, uh, the, the first three or four series, and I don't know how many it runs to, but... Uh, uh, I, I think there there is something very compelling about that, and I don't think it is just movie buffs and uh, and comic buffs and so on. Uh, I think a lot of people really, when you get into a world, uh, you want to stay with it, and you 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 don't want to just leave the cinema after two hours. You you want to you know hang on in there. Agreed, absolutely. I want to, and and you know, I don't I don't want to take too much of your time. I want to talk about serial killer as well. Um, which, yeah. which uh, again, now is Kevin co-plotting with you? How how is this collaboration working as far as prose with Kevin O'Neill? Ah, well, that, that, there's a there's an interesting aspect on that. The, the background it's um it's a proposed well it will be a uh, five volume uh, black comedy novel series. So volume one is serial killer. So it is this classic box set where. Uh, you know, you, you disappear for a long weekend with uh, with all these kind of novels. So the first one is called Serial Killer, and the second one I'm a third of the way through as as we speak, and that will be out in uh, about two or three months. Oh wow! Um, uh, because that's the that's the beauty of being a, an independent publisher that you know you 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 don't have to get bogged down with endless uh, schedules and things, you're out there. You know, there's no reason for these long delays. But um, to come out, uh, to, to come back to your um, uh, your question about Kevin, um, Read Em and Weep, uh, Volume 1, Serial Killer, it began life uh, as a, a sitcom, a very dark sitcom, which is why Kevin and I are both huge fans of Larry David. And I think it's fair to say the tone is not dissimilar um, and it was about life in comics, uh, which uh, in the 1970s was pretty weird and pretty strange. And um, uh, and we saw there was huge potential for this for uh, a sitcom. So um, we sent it to a, a BBC television producer, uh, I think it's Gareth Edwards, uh, who was the producer of Spaced. Yes. Um, uh, starring Simon Pegg. And uh, obviously, because he was a producer on, on uh, Spaced, he got it. He, he saw the comedy, he saw the potential, and he worked with us on uh, uh, various drafts and so on and rewrites. And um, eventually he was happy with it and he greenlit the series. But of course, as these things go, you know, we, you, you know we've, we've reached that one level of uh, hierarchy. But of course, he had a boss and uh, his boss said, surprise, surprise, those words that all us freelancers dread. 
Uh, it's too niche. <laughs> it's good. It's it's good, but it's too niche, and you just can't get past that one, can you? You know what I mean? Uh, um, so, and I, I I suppose his viewpoint was, um, you know, that in, in America, um, I, I, I think it's fair to say um, American comics are a part of everyone's life or a lot of people's lives. Uh, the same is true in France. But in Britain, uh, well, uh, according to this guy at the BBC, at least, uh, they're, they're rather more niche. They're, um, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're for a, a minority audience rather than a majority. But of course, as with anything that's niche, you, you can you can make it more mainstream. Um, but you have to have, if you like, a certain amount of faith, which was lacking. So we tried it um, subsequently with other television production companies. And uh, we got a lot of encouragement and so forth. But, um, I mean, I think the way that things are often made in the UK is that, they're, you know, somebody in a studio has an idea and then he goes out and looks for a writer. It's not usually the other way around. And so eventually it collected dust and was in a filing cabinet. And uh, I... I tried uh, adapting it for radio, and uh, uh, the head of uh, BBC Comedy Radio said, it's really funny, uh, she said, but it's, uh, it's too visual for radio. <laughs> so uh, so uh, stumped again. And um, uh, so then I, I, I said to Kevin, you know what, um, th- this is crazy that we have this idea that we're both crazy about. And you know, we 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 we've got to we've really got to make this happen. And uh, so I said, I will novelise it based on our um, our sitcoms, and then uh, you know we can have your input on on you know things to uh, play up, play down, and so forth. And so that that's what we did. And and um, uh, my wife Lisa, who's the publisher uh, of the series, and is very up. On what sells uh, in um, in the world of uh, ebook novels and uh, and paper novels because she's an avid reader. She said that uh, so well what you've got there is great um, and and of course one of the things with the novel that you is that you can develop the characters so where you have hints of crazy behaviour in a novel you explain why this guy is completely bonkers and insane and and so forth. Um, and uh, but what she said was that uh, the, the the key thing uh, for um, for a text novel is uh, yeah, you, you need to start page one with a murder. So someone's got to die. <laughs> so uh, uh, so there's a kind of murder element that's not so much added to the original sitcom, but arises out of it because um, uh, the the um, the the, the the main character, he writes comic book serials, and he's also a serial killer. Uh, so, uh, and I think, I think when we first uh, when we first first brought this out, uh, I think we launched at the 2080 40th birthday, and they said rather nervously, uh, "God, I hope these people he's killing aren't uh, um, <laughs> you know aren't fictional representations of <laughs> some of the guests here at the uh, at the party," but. Uh, uh, no, no, that's not the case at all. Um, and so it's a five, um, it's a five volume um, series. Um, 
and it basically follows the uh, the course of British comic book history, which starts, of course, before 2000 AD. I mean, uh, some of your audience will know that if you like the the comic revolution uh, started with a comic called Battle, uh, which from which Charlie's War came, and which was a huge later inspiration for Garth Ennis. Uh, then it was followed by a comic called Action, which was very controversial and got banned. And then came 2000 AD, and then there were um, uh, there was a girls' comic follow-up called Misty. So there are these kind of fictional versions of these characters. And there's a really nice thing uh, that I think we do in Read Them and Weep. Um, and it's a really fun thing. Um, I think it's done rather differently to. I'm trying to think of it as an American uh, novel. Is it Cavalier and Clay? I was thinking the same uh, thing. Yes, indeed. Yeah, but that that's quite serious. Whereas uh, Re- Read 'Em and Weep is more of a fun ride. Yes. But it does something else that I think uh, I, I, I think may well get imitated in the fullness of time, because it does something that we all like to see. What if comics really worked and were really successful? In other words, all those terrible decisions that we all know of on both sides of the Atlantic. Oh, God, when they lost so-and-so or when this artist died or walked away. So what if things worked out well so comics actually developed and, and, did, uh, and did great things? So it, it's a kind of alternative history of comics uh, where the good guys the good guys win and, and the suits lose. So it's a little bit of a fairy tale in that sense. But of course, it's a dark fairy tale as the main character uh, is a what should we say? He's a very he's a, he's a chap who has much in common with Larry David. Let's put it that way. <laughs> no, and again, hand in hand with your 2000 AD history, which, as you say, I mean, is is really your history as well. And kind of delves into those, yeah. those previous publications. No, it's it, it's great, and I'm I'm glad that you are uh, free of editorial interference. You guys can tell your story, and you know Chuck Dixon, the Batman writer of the '90s that still writes comics. He's delving into eBooks now, and um, and 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 hard published books. And I and I am I'm, I I appreciate watching this evolution and, and watching creators like yourselves get into this arena because it's still genre fiction in a lot of ways. You're able to express your ideas in a different way, obviously through prose, but again, doing it unfiltered and uh, getting your say. And again, based on what I'm reading in, in your 2000 AD history, uh, clearly a lot of editorial interference and I'm glad that you're able to tell your stories clearly. Yeah, it, it's, it's a great uh, relief to, not think, oh, how do I get this past yeah. uh, the man? You know what I mean? And, and that, that was uh, and one of the things I'm looking forward to on volume three, um, and I've, I've got it kind of sketched out, but it's still got a little way to go, is volume one is, as I say, inspired by the war comics that uh, began the, what we call a comic revolution here in the UK. And then uh, volume two, the one I'm currently writing, is inspired by action, but volume three will be based on 2000 AD. So I have my alternative to 2000 AD, which is called Space Warp. And so I had to think, right, what if I could, you know, produce a whole, rather than the original stories I came up with on 2000 AD, what if there were some new ones? 
how could I come up with something else like Judge Dredd? So I will actually work all these out, and I have already done so, in fact. Uh, and that will be probably middle of next year, I think that one comes out. And so it's a lot of fun to think, okay, let's try and find another Strontium dog, another Judge Dredd, another Slain. Yes. And, um, and I think one of the things that we, we're starting to have happen already is, and this takes it uh, out of the pure realm of text, is uh, our readers, because obviously many of them are comic book fans, are starting to draw these guys, you know? So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to end up with some kind of illustrated gallery, particularly, I think, on, on uh, Volume 3, um, where, uh, uh, you know, which we, could, we can publish on our website and, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe, maybe do something further with. And, again, it's a way of breaking out of this... Um, the restrictions of conventional publishing, uh, because the the way it's always geared up, it's like, uh, well, you know, we we call the shots, and you you, you know, we click and uh, our fingers, and you guys jump, you know. But there's a way of making it a much more democratic process. So, if for example, someone were to come along and uh, draw a few pages of one of these fictional um, uh, uh, text characters. You know, we can put it up on the uh, on our uh, website and uh, and see what the audience think, and maybe take it from there. So there's there, there's some interesting possibilities here. I think it's it's I think creatives have been disempowered for some time, or certainly in the UK we have. And I think it's good to hear that uh, guys like Chuck Dixon and so on. Um, you know, it's about taking taking our power back and. Uh, and reconnecting or connecting more strongly with our audience. So it's a, it it's, has has a lot of potential, and um, economically, it, it's certainly paying better uh, than um, than working for 2008. Well, I'm really glad to hear that, and also that your creativity has has uh, you know gotten you to this opportunity of of taking your creative energy and finding a, a different platform. To, to do it, connect more directly with the fans. And I feel that same kinship with a lot of you comic creators, and I've said this to the American creators who have gone on to Image and done their own creator own stuff, doing this podcast. I come from traditional uh, broadcast radio, and it's great to do my kind of show on my terms, not need a producer or, a, or an owner to tell me you can't do that kind of show here. And And again, so I kind of feel like we're all because of the digital platform, we're all finding new avenues to connect with an audience. Yeah, I, I, I'm delighted to hear you say that, John, because, yeah, I, it doesn't surprise me at all that, uh, that that's going on. I, I, I know it's happening um, in audio here. Um, I've also got uh, an audiobook version of Be Pure. Yes, I've got to talk about that, yes. Yeah, well, I, I spent four days in the uh, studio. Uh, um, I, I think uh, I, I was about two hundred and fifty pages, something like that. But uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting experience. But uh, I I got the impression from talking to the uh, producer that uh, the kind of thing that you're, you're you, you know you're referring to with your own experience it is true for them too, and uh, audio is kind of breaking out as well. 
Um, and uh, we, we did this particular one on Spoken World, uh, which is like a, an indie. Uh, and then I think it goes on the um, uh, the Amazon audio oh, site. Uh, um, so it will have both 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 platforms. But it, it's very exciting because in the past, I think if someone wanted to uh, do a talking book um, or even, a, let's say, a, an audio play, they would generally have to go through uh, quite traditional um, sources, with, with a notable exception of, I think, Big Finish, who you may know of, yep. who... Um, uh, yeah, they, they, they do Doctor Who audio plays. But with that notable exception, uh, otherwise, it, it's it's quite tough. And um, it's quite difficult to get um, uh, to get something going on audio. Uh, Charlie's War, for example, I think was shortlisted um, at least three or four times for BBC Radio. And, um, yeah, didn't quite make it past the finishing line every time. Uh, because if you like, there's there's more conservative forces that uh, you know are a little wary of what should we say anti-war uh, uh, coming out from um, an anti-war drama coming out from what is ultimately uh, a government channel. Yeah, I understand. And I well, again, there are these audio alternatives. How many of and real fast because I, I I don't want to take too much of your time, and and hopefully you'll <laughs> come back because. We we're, we haven't scratched yeah. the surface, obviously, Pat. You've got a wide body of work, and you know I appreciate this <laughs> this uh, overview conversation. Like, do you? How many of your creations do you own, and are able to take to other places? Uh, well, there, there are a, quite a number of them where I I own them in conjunction with the publisher. Okay. But all the two all the two thousand AD material. Uh, I don't own. And if if you look at the body of work I produced for 2000 AD, you know, it, it could it could cover a couple of really heavy bookcases. Uh, but but elsewhere, there's uh, Requiem Vampire Night, which is um, available on Comicsology, uh, uh, and um, a beautiful artwork by Olivier Ledoire. Uh, that that's if you like that that's uh, kind of creator owned. It is creator owned. Uh, obviously, you work with a publisher, and similarly, uh, we have. Um, uh, I set up a company uh, with uh, two colleagues, um, Repeat Offenders Limited, and we produced um, uh, um, American Reaper, uh, which as uh, an artist is Clint Langley, and we hope to bring that out digitally and probably on uh, in a paper version. Uh, probably early next year, and that, that's uh, um, a, a science fiction cop, basically, and um, uh, some great, great artwork in that. Some of it is digital, uh, and some of it is by an artist called uh, Faye Dalton, uh, D-A-L-T-O-N, and if any of your listeners look her up online, uh, you'll see just how great she is. Uh, she She's kind of got a very beautiful retro style uh, that evokes the world of Mad Men. And uh, so so we have those things on the go. And um, there's probably there's probably some other things that uh, have just escaped my mind at the moment. Yeah, No worries. Well, you know, when Volume 2, and it, it, am I right, Good Night, John Boy? Is that uh, the title for Volume 2? 
for uh, ah, good, good night, John Boys. Yeah, you know the the volume two of uh, Read 'em and Weep is Good Night, John Boy. Obviously taken from the um, uh, the the uh, was that tele- Walton, yes, it was. wasn't it? <laughs> Where at the end uh, they go Good Night, John Boy. So uh, um, uh, it's it has more of a significance of uh, when someone dies in the uh, in the novel. Uh, the expression is well, Good Night, John Boy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's. Uh, uh, um, uh, so yeah, that that will be out in uh, whew, I'd say uh, two to three months. Wow, that's uh, depending on how long my uh, lovely wife needs to uh, uh, package it and uh, promote it. But yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll keep in touch with you well, on that. Yeah, because it would be great to have you back and and get into even more. Because truly, I I, uh, I I've been a, I've been a, a real fan of of 2000 AD and a lot of your creations and also. The format of, of 2000 AD and the way British comics are episodic compared to American comics, plus uh, to get more into Read 'em and Weep and, and the books. But uh, yeah, touch on some of your other creations. So, really great conversation, Padding, and continued success. I, I really am glad that you found this new platform for your voice. And I know that your uh, uh, fans are already following you. I've seen comments on Twitter. People can go to Millsverse. Dot com, correct? That's your uh, your website? That's correct, yeah. Excellent, and get more updates on, on these projects. But uh, be pure, be vigilant, behave. And uh, and Serial Killer, the first volume of Read 'em and Weep. Excellent reads from uh, Pat Mills, Kevin O'Neill, obviously on Read 'em and Weep as well. But uh, looking forward to, to the new stuff as it comes out and, and another conversation. Thank you so much, John. I look forward to talking with you again. Great conversation with Pat Mills. I really look forward to us uh, continuing when his next volume uh, for Serial Killer comes out. Let's move on now to uh, the comic book news that happened last week. Uh, The announcements about uh, Robert Kirkman and Mark Miller. Uh, First, I want to talk about Kirkman. And uh, pretty interesting that he has now decided to move his productions from AMC to Amazon Studios. It doesn't surprise me. And it again underlines that the old rules of television are being challenged by these streaming channels that can offer better deals and uh, none of the BS. I remember David Duchovny complaining that uh, he felt like he wasn't getting a proper share of X-Files money when uh, they put uh, the X-Files in syndication on FX back in the 90s and early 2000s. And uh, one of the reasons why he was holding out for those last couple seasons because he felt like he wasn't getting his fair share. Well, now we're learning that Kirkman feels like he's not getting his fair share from AMC uh, due to similar kind of network accounting. Um, I'm sure that the networks feel like it's business as usual, but again, much like uh, you know, network television felt the challenge of cable, uh, now we're getting streaming challenging both cable and network television, and it's, I think, fascinating. And so, of course, he's going to get a better deal with Amazon. Doesn't include Walking Dead, doesn't include Invincible, but Skybound has a lot of properties to choose from. Uh, God, I'm looking forward to hopefully Thief of Thieves, uh, the caper uh, book that I love so much that um, the guys do. Is it Diggle and Martinborough? I know Sean Martinborough is the uh, regular artist. I'm pretty sure it's Andy Diggle, or at least it has been in the past, but it's a great crime series that Robert's been having, you know, going on since his creation of it. And uh, I know there's a lot more coming from Skybound. Then there's Mark Miller. And uh, pretty cool that he cut the deal with uh, Netflix. Kind of interesting because if you watch the Netflix video, 
that promotes the fact that they just bought Miller World, Wanted is included in those uh, row of comic books. And at first I kind of thought, well, certainly, you know, Kick-Ass and, and Kingsman are off the table for being Netflix properties as far as, you know, developing new stuff because, you know, they've already got, you know, ongoing movie franchise deals. Um, but uh, the the thing about Wanted, it's been 10 years. Maybe the rights have reverted back because they never did follow up with a, a second film. And also, hopefully, on a Netflix Wanted series, if such a thing is possible, maybe make it, it could really go back to its costume superhero or supervillain, really, uh, motif, rather than the plainclothes version we got. Hey, I loved the uh, James McAvoy, Angelina Jolie movie. It was fantastic. Um, and I'm sorry that they didn't do more. But you had all that weird Weaver's crap and everything. And I always liked what uh, Mark and J.G. Jones originally set up, and as I'm sure most of us did, in the Top Cow series. And it would be really great to see that come alive in a very different way than the film. I mean, it, it kind of can really stand on its own and be a much different film or television property than the original movie. I wanted to go back to a conversation I had with Mark face-to-face back in June of 2015. Mark was in Chicago, did a bunch of signings for uh, Graham Crackers comic stores here in town, and um, it was great. It was just wonderful timing. And he's like, you know, come to the room and, you know, come to my hotel and we'll, we'll, we'll sit face-to-face, which was great because we literally hadn't seen each other uh, since 2009. So, God, it had been six years since we saw each other. And uh, he's always been great about coming back. And, uh, you know, it's this is just under two years ago that we are just over that uh, we had this conversation. I'm really excited about this Netflix deal. And I want to play you about eight or so minutes of a conversation we had about movies versus these streaming Netflix and Amazon uh, opportunities that seem to be popping up so much and comparing the quality and the kind of production values you can get from TV versus film. And not as a gotcha, but it is interesting because I do see that uh, Mark's uh, feelings have obviously changed. And I think uh, it's it's interesting to go back and hear what he used to think. So, uh, again, I just think it's kind of a, a fun little piece. And uh, I'm always happy when uh, there's a word balloon interview that we can dovetail back to uh, what's going on in the uh, geek headlines today. So let's listen to this hunk of uh, my conversation with Mark Miller now on Word Balloon. Television yeah. has really become the the, the long form character yeah. study, yeah. and film really is the big splash for two hours yeah. and stuff. Two things: Are you able to still tell in your feel you know feeling interesting character stories in film? Does television interest you? I mean, do, when you see what's going on with TV and the longer stories, TV, um, I, I'm a very weary convert to you know. Like, I'm not a massive television watcher. You know, like, I'd say since I was nineteen, I've watched. 20 TV shows or something, you know, in all that time. You know, Crazy. Like, it seems nuts. Yeah. Yeah, like every show everybody talks about, I've never seen it. Right? Okay. <laughs> you know? Except, I mean, I could honestly tell you the ones I've watched, and I have loved them. I've loved The Wire, I love Mad Men, I love Sopranos, I love Lost, Breaking Bad. You know, so th- there's like a handful of genius shows that I absolutely love. Other things, people say to me, you know, buy the box set. You might not like season one, but it gets great by season four. I'm like, I'm not spending that amount of no, time. You no, know? I so, agree. So I, I, I think if they haven't nailed it by episode one or two, I'm gone. You know, I'm out of there. You know, so like, um, so I, and it's funny because one of my projects they were talking about turning into a television show a couple of years back, and I spoke to the the guys at the company, and they said, I said, I feel there's not enough material here to, to run for five seasons like you're talking about, and they said, Ah, television isn't 
so much giving you the answer. It's about reeling you along every week, thinking you're going to get the answer. I was like, that's a terrible way Yeah, to really, work. that is you know, it's like I, I kind of hate the idea of that. Yeah. But sometimes it does work because the slow burn of maddening is what made it cool. You know, Absolutely. Like that's one of the things that there was almost nothing happens, but then in real life almost nothing happens, so that's sure. kind of interesting in its own way. It's where you just get into the character more than the plot. But I, I, I do see some awesome television too. Like I love Daredevil. The Daredevil. I wanted that. Show. Okay. I, I, I was obsessed with it. You know, I was binging on it, and like, and I was really busy that week as well. But I still made time to watch Daredevil. <laughs> I loved it so much. Oh yeah. And you know, so so I do see some great stuff, and it does interest me. And there is one of my books that we're almost certainly going to turn into a television show. We've just done the deal, and we'll we'll shoot the pilot and everything. Okay. And um, so I'm so I'm I'm I'm, I'm skeptical of television, but. I see there's enough really talented people in it that it could be good. And I do agree. <coughs> Excuse me. I think Jupiter's Circle actually would lend itself very well to television. And I sort of almost don't want to wait 10 years to do a prequel series of movies once we've done the Jupiter's Legacy movies. I cannot, you know, we're, we're going to make the Jupiter's Legacy movies relatively soon. That's you know? fantastic. Um, and hopefully that will be maybe two or three movies. Um, and then you would maybe have to wait and do the prequels afterwards. Whereas it would be quite interesting maybe to have a television series that's complementary to it. It couldn't come out before it because the legacy has to set the standard and the style, you know. Uh, and then the TV guys come in and maybe do a prequel series on television. And I think that, that could be interesting. And we've had those conversations, but there's nothing uh, nothing firm yet. You know? Okay. Um, and you too early to talk about whatever is coming to TV? Uh... Uh, yeah. The, okay. We, uh, we did the deal actually about three or four months ago, but like uh, nothing's gone public yet, you know. So it's actually not that hard to work out because... There's only a couple of things that aren't in the works as films, so you just think, you know, just just uh, have a look at the back catalogue and see. All right, what's yeah. going to all right do the math, everybody. We'll all do the math. That's that's fine. I uh, well, and I, and that's the thing because I mean, you know, like Secret Service. Well, and actually, the difference of Secret Service as a film compared to the miniseries and yeah. stuff, which it always works much like Wanted worked, yeah. and and the the little differences <coughs> and stuff. Collaborating with Matthew Vaughn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, you, that really, congratulations on the two of you finding common ground and, and making such interesting movies and very different movies as well. There's a thread there. Yeah. But but I do think that, yeah, they, they've been they've mm. been great and fun. It's funny, it's, the, the thread is the loser becoming something awesome, isn't it? I guess I'm wanted that as well. But it's quite <laughs> That's interesting. True. That's a theme in all my stuff. That's true, <laughs> yes, yes. But like... Um, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Matthew because that's one of the things that puts me off television as well is that, no disrespect to people who work in TV, but somebody like Matthew is a world-class director, you know, who can who can deliver like action scenes, like the, the, the final 25 minutes or something of, of Secret Service. You could never do that as a television show, you know? True. Uh, and then when you work in the budgets as well, like if you think, if you think uh, something like uh, Jupiter's Legacy would be a $200 million movie uh, to make, so that would mean in, in, in television terms it would be a hundred million an hour, you know, which would be impossible. I mean, that's never going to happen. So you, you're never going to have directors or writers uh, or actors, you know, at the same level that you can get in cinema. You know, I, so. I, I don't know, man, because Scorsese did Boardwalk Empire and the Wachowskis and Straczynski, you know, have this Sense Eight that is a new show that's on Netflix that just debuted but last in ten, week. I don't know how, how much is an uh, you know like a big television show. What's the budget for for one yeah, hour? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know either. But I keep hearing that Netflix is truly. I mean, God, they just bought the rights to a, a Brad Pitt movie and beat up the other studios. That oh no, we'll we'll run it. I mean, that's the thing. It seems like Amazon and Netflix ha- are putting huge yeah. amounts of money. And and yeah, I don't I don't know, man. It just seems like the and you're right as far as. The spectacular film yeah. that does need over-the-top special effects, but like Daredevil is a great example. But even of. smaller ones, though, you know, like I, I wouldn't name names or anything, but I know that 
the Hit Girl sequences in Kick-Ass 1 are so fantastically choreographed and the guy who does them is a guy called Brad Allen and you couldn't afford Brad Allen on a television budget okay you know? so, okay, yeah, you so something that okay. looked, I mean the, the sequence where she runs down the corridor at the end of Kick-Ass 1 is three three weeks work two, two to three weeks work okay. you know? and television couldn't afford to shoot a fight scene for three weeks you know they would shoot it True. in a day or two True. days you know? but comparing, comparing to the Daredevil stuff and everything I mean look at those elaborate fight scenes that, those that look it, good but I don't think they're as good as Brad Allen well and, and, yeah. and, and certainly yeah more ac- more acrobatics and it's funny I'm only I'm only through episode nine because I'm savoring Daredevil I'm, oh, taking, really? I'm yeah. taking my sweet time that's wise I wish I'd done that because I was like where's the next one and somebody said oh you've got 14 months to wait I was like what <laughs> that's why exactly yeah, man yeah, you were very you know? wise I was the glutton I was I, the glutton. Yeah, no no <laughs> and, I, well, and I know you know they're making uh, Jessica Jones now. Yeah. So yeah. and I imagine there's going to be some sort of common thread there as well. No, it's interesting because and really, dude, I go back to when Wanted was in production, and that was like when Sin City was you know coming out and everything, or yeah. around that same time. I don't know, or close enough yeah. that. You know, it seemed like, oh, Miller's got the hot hand. And now the other Miller's got the hot <laughs> hand. And that's fantastic. I mean, Wanted was 08? 08, yeah. Okay, so in six yeah. years, good God. I mean, this this pile of movies, and, and, I'm, and I'm happy. But, yeah, it just seems like TV, they're all saying, oh, you know, that's, that's where you can tell the longer story, the yeah. bigger tapestry. But, again, I can appreciate your own tastes. And also the fact that you're still seeing a lot of great, you know, European films. Yeah. The Europeans are still making slick crime movies and great little, you know, tight little action movies and stuff. I think the American stuff is great too, though, you know. I mean, I think we've never lived in a, a time as good as the last decade. I would say, for superhero cinema and things, comic book cinema, it's fantastic. I think at the other end, there's great stuff as well, you know, like there's great comedies, there's great dramas. Television's never been better than it is right now, you know, I mean, the stuff I grew up with was Manimal and Automan and things like that. You know? so like, <laughs> Me too. So, I mean, I love the fact that we have something as good as Daredevil now, you know. But like, uh, but we've get, I don't know, I think it's a multiplication factor almost. It's like there's there's never been as many talented people working in the industry as I think there is right now. It's the same in comics, same in television, same in cinema. It's amazing. Like when, I remember when I was 17 looking forward to seeing Mannequin. Like, and Mannequin looks pretty good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, there was maybe three films a year that was actually any good, you know? Well, come on, I'm going every weekend. I'm going oh, yeah. to cinema every weekend. We were suffer- Well, we were happy to get that Reb Brown Captain America movie, yeah. all those 70s yeah, all- Marvel movies. No, man, I know. I mean, I I, I'm only a couple day. years older than you. Yeah, man. Yeah, I was there first day um, for every one of those movies. Like, were uh, they in theaters over, over oh, by yeah, yeah, Okay, because yeah. they were so, TV but, over here, you know. Oh, we things you got as a TV pilot, we got as cinematic releases. Sure, uh, sure. So things like... Um, this Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man. That was to me. That was like Star Wars. It was 1977. You had Star Wars. 1978. There was Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man. You know? Outstanding. And I, and I went to see that four times in the cinema. I went four times. I was obsessed with it. And sure. then somebody said they're making a TV show of this too. And it was only years later I found out. No, that was just an episode of the TV show you were watching in the cinema. You know. There you go. And again, a little reminder of the fact that uh, don't complain about these shows, man. I'm sorry. You don't know how good you had it. I mean, really, the stuff we were talking about at the end, as far as those 70s Marvel movies, I mean, you've seen them. I'm sure you've seen the bootlegs or the few times that Sci-Fi Channel has shown them or whatever. You know, has El Rey, like, gone back now? And and it it seems like that's prime for El Rey to uh, revisit all of that stuff. So El Rey, man, boy, last weekend, I don't know if you guys saw it, but... uh, they did a whole Planet of the Apes thing. They showed uh, the five movies. But more importantly, they showed the television show, which I love. Uh, Sarek, Mark and Sarah, playing uh, General Urko in the TV show. I don't know who played Zaius. It's weird, though, because Zaius just didn't have the bite that he did in as uh, Maurice Evans playing him, obviously, 
in uh, in the first two movies. But uh, also, uh, they showed the cartoon, and I love the cartoon because it's very serious. You know, um, I forget who made. I, well, it must have been 20th Century Fox doing the, uh, and I don't, unless they licensed it to another animation company. But the Apes cartoon and Star Trek and stuff. For the most part, those things were played like serious, and I really think that uh, the Apes cartoon had some interesting storylines going. They brought Brent back, James Franciscus, and uh, he is surviving. You know, maybe it's an alternate universe, obviously, to beneath the planet of the Apes. But Nova and Brent are brought back with uh, the three astronauts that they have. They've got uh, two guys and a girl and a pizza place, an Apes pizza place. No, not at all. Uh, but it was really entertaining to watch that last weekend. And uh, I'm, I'm glad. El Rey has kind of uh, picked up a notch. Don't get me wrong. I'm always happy to see the Kung Fu movies and Starsky and Hutch reruns. But they got the Hulk right now going on over there. And uh, also, I'm really excited. I didn't even realize it's the 20th anniversary of Stargate, uh, the Richard Dean Anderson series. Another MGM property, obviously. And uh, it was something they announced at Comic-Con as well, a prequel series. Going back to uh, the original woman that uh, we see in the original film, and also she had a couple of episodes in the Stargate uh, TV series as well, Catherine, and uh, I would love to uh, see that uh, prequel series. So it's fun to kind of revisit Jack O'Neill and SG-1 in the original series. I'm a big fan, and I always forget that in Stargate Atlantis, I don't even remember what uh, his name was, Jacob or Jason Momoa's uh, character in Stargate Atlantis, but hey man. I dug Aquaman years ago when he was on Stargate Atlantis and everything. Fantastic character, so very excited to see him. Not to mention Game of, Game of Thrones, of course. But uh, anyway, all right, my brain's all over the place. You'll forgive me. I'm still recovering from my illness. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Word Balloon, brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Again, League, can't thank you enough. Really appreciate the support. Really fun uh, seeing a lot of you in San Diego and meeting you and, and getting to shake your hands. And thank you. Uh, a lot more new Patreon subscribers uh, in the last couple of weeks. Thanks again for your support. Really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon, it's free. It will always be free. But if you want to help out the cause, go to wordballoon.com, click on the Patreon ad. And if you can spare the price of a comic book a month, that would be great. But uh, it's not necessary, but I appreciate the support of the Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by In Stock Trades at InStockTrades.com. We mentioned some of the great uh, Pat Mills product. Let's uh, delve more into Pat Mills' uh, books at InStockTrades.com. We can do, uh, here's uh, ABC Warriors Mech, uh, we, we mentioned Volume 3. Is there Volume 2? Let's see, I'm going to go to Page 2 for more stuff here. Well, there's Return to Robusters uh, featuring um, Pat Mills and Clint Langley, Mars, or pardon me, Clint, Clint Langley. It's, uh, let's see. 20% off, it's $15.99. You can get The Cursed Earth Saga, the original classic from John Wagner, Pat Mills, and Brian Boland, Mike McMahon. Uh, the complete story collected, it's 45% off. Uh, you can get a copy for $19.25 at In Stock Trades. So uh, some great books featuring Pat Mills at uh, InStockTrades.com. A great online bookstore, a wonderful sponsor of Word Balloon, low these many years. I appreciate their support as much as I do the League of Word Balloon listeners. They're part of the league, and I think they're they're OG man. They're they're original or OL original league man. As far as I'm concerned, if your orders are fifty dollars or more, you'll receive free shipping. They have uh, damaged books that they you can save up to sixty percent 
on, depending on it. And, you know, seriously, they're great where they're not going to sell you at list price a book that has a wrinkle in it or, you know, a ding of some sort if the spine is cracked or something like that. They don't play like that. So they hang on to that inventory and they sell it to you at reduced cost. And I remember when they used to have the great warehouse sales at when their uh, warehouse was in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We'd make the great pilgrimage. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd drop a nice chunk of change and come back with, like, you know, a couple boxes full of graphic novels. They're great people, and uh, they give you great books at great prices. Check them out for yourself, InStockTrades.com. Thanks for listening today. Uh, very excited about the weeks coming up with not only the wonderful guests that we have scheduled, but uh, made a lot of great contacts of uh, some wonderful creators that I intend to uh, get on War Balloon in the weeks and months ahead. And we've got uh, Salt Lake City Con coming up. Uh, can't wait in September and uh, New York Con as well in October. So really looking forward to uh, going to those shows and uh, giving you more news. Also, can I end with a, a little personal note? Um, I had the pleasure of doing the text for an art book coming out from Dark Horse Comics at the end of the month. It's out August 30th, the last Wednesday in August, and uh, it's called No Plan B, The Art of Mike Avon Oming. And, uh, well, it's Michael Avon Oming, but, you know, we're friends, so I'm going to say Mike. Mike and I did all the uh, these great interviews uh, on the side, collecting uh, text for the book, and I was proud to uh, write the text. Uh, any of the words that you see in there are my words, and uh, I'm very proud to be part of the project. Uh, it's fun that uh, David Mack and Mike and Brian Bendis uh, did the forward and afterwards of the book. So it's pretty cool, and I, I get to horn in on uh, the Three Musketeers party. But uh, I like all three of those guys, and they've been uh, very kind to me uh, since the very early days of Word Balloon, all three of them. And uh, I, I'm always happy to see them at cons, and uh, we have fun. And it's great that I got to work on this project with the three guys. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. I love Mike, and uh, if all goes well, I'm sure we'll be talking to Mike in the weeks ahead. But it's a great book from Dark Horse. And uh, I encourage you to uh, order it from your local retailer or from InStockTrades.com. Uh, and I, I hope you get it. Uh, I'm, I'm very proud of my contribution to the book. But really, it's Mike telling his story. I just really asked him the questions. And uh, Mike's got a hell of a backstory. He really does. And um, I'm glad that he's one of these creatives that got through some really rough times and, uh, you know, is, is living a good life and has a great wife. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy for him and his success in uh, the comic business and things like uh, the Powers television series. And I know there's nothing but uh, great things ahead for Mike in his future. And I was very honored to help him present his story in this collection uh, art book, No Plan B, The Art of Michael Avon Oming from Dark Horse. Anyway, that's it. Thanks for listening today to Word Balloon. Catch you on the flip side. We'll, uh, we'll talk in a couple days. That's an old DJ talk. But uh, until then, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.